Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. In this episode, I chat with Kieran Singh Sarah. During his trip to New York City in September 2019, Sarah is executive director of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. He was born in the south of England, the son of refugees from Uganda and ethnic South Asians, adherents of the Sikh religion. He shares insights on American culture and what he calls its identity crisis. He talks about how his experiences have informed his opinion that storytelling is a powerful tool for building connection and understanding. This conversation also touches on his work with the United Nations International Day of Peace, StoryCorps, and an incipient collaboration with Fridays for the Future. He is also a two-time veteran of Creative Placemaking Leadership Summits in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Columbia, South Carolina. Well, it's it's really good to see you. It's been a couple of months. Yes, since. good to be here. So tell me why you're here um, so, for this week. So why I am here is because of a relationship that we have with many of the peace-building organizations. So basically, Saturday was past is um, International Day of Peace. And for the last six or seven years, we've been kind of collaborating on programs related to International Day of Peace. Now, my background is in peace building using storytelling. So that's how I came to the United States eight years ago. So I've always sort of seen storytelling as one of the most powerful tools to which we can build a better world and its connection to, to making our world a better place, right? So it's, it's the two are really integrated in that sense. And so for a number of years, we've, I've presented for International Day of Peace here in New York City because of uh, it being kind of a hub with the United Nations uh, headquarters for peace and security. And a lot of that work has come from some collaborations with UN agencies, United Nations Education. And we bring, so we brought young storytellers from different parts of the world. In 2014, I was here with a 24-year-old woman from Kenya and helping her tell her story at the UN headquarters but that was her, the official student observance day. And she was helping her get her story from written to performance, because she was performing it live. Um, and so I've, I've come back to New York because it's such an important hub for that space to happen. And on Saturday was the launch of the first Global Peace Building Action Week. The idea that peace building shouldn't be just one day, but having it extended over a week means that we can sort of really sort of go a bit deeper and and bring in donors and foundations, peace building partners and, and expand it. So they'd ask me to kind of open it up and get the sort of the plenary how we story the future. So the peace building community are really seeing the importance of storytelling at the forefront of the work that we do because it's about storing the future. So I wrote a piece, a story that was about that and I opened it, helped to open it up and give this presentation. That was the main reason I came here, but also because, um, well, that was the main reason I came here, but it just, I came in a bit early so I could also attend the Climate uh, Fridays for the Future, led by climate activists, uh, Greta Thunberg. 
And I just thought that was really important while I was here to kind of be present there because some of the stuff I'm helping, trying to help to do behind the scenes is support her team and her campaign, the Fridays for the Future campaign, because I think it's such an important movement that I want to be able to share our resources, our storytelling resources, to help young activists around the world learn how to harness their story but build mutual support for one another, for their planet, and for all of us to work in collective cooperation together. So I, I was trying to make those connections at, at the same time, and, and they said I could interview Greta, but not right now, at a later stage, for one of our projects that we're doing, <laughs> which is the designing of a computer game using storytelling to address climate emergency and to empower kids around the world to tackle things like fear and distrust and build mutual cooperation. So I'm here for a bunch of things, meeting StoryCorps as well, tomorrow and some foundations, you know, there's a lot of foundations based in New York, but they don't always sort of connect with us in central Appalachia and we have to make, so we have to kind of come to them to let them know that we exist. So I try and do a little bit of that while I'm here too and connect with friends and eat, drink coffee and food and Thai food in Lower East Side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those things that I love being in the city. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you really inspired people at the summit in Columbia, South Carolina. And the way I know is that I looked at the social media. So many people tweeted and posted about your plenary address. They quoted you. And I hope, oh. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, but. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't see all of it, no. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the most savviest on social media, but. But I think. One of the things that made it powerful was the story itself, you know, which begins with your parents. And of course, all of our stories begin with our parents. Mm -hmm. But uh, yours went through something really traumatic. Kind yeah, of. I guess, I mean, I guess the idea of that really sort of came about is we always look back at our lives depending on, on the moment that we're living in that, on that particular time, what we're doing. So our narrative sort of changes because we have the opportunity to do that too in our, in our brains to be able to look at when we wake up every day, what is the story we tell ourselves? And, but also I sort of look at that and I'm, now I'm looking it back more through the lens of storytelling because that's what I do and that's what I advocate for and it's what I support and who I employ and, and I'm with it every day. So when I go back, I think it's so important because where you are born, where you have come from, who you've come from, is, it's almost, it's like, that's your, that's your beginning. So, it's, there are also the people that were, who have passed on, not just your physical being, but also the, what's been passed on through, from my parents to me, and then for what was passed on from them to my parents, is so important, has made up who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's always, and plus it's also something everyone can kind of relate to, you know, to some extent. We can kind of relate to uh, our childhood. We can relate to the place where we were born. Mm -hmm. And we always, I think we always have this sort of spiritual connection, no matter where we are in the world, to the place that we were born. I sat by a fire with somebody once um, at this Earth Skills gathering, actually the week after the summit in Colombia. Mm -hmm. I went straight from there to this Earth Skills gathering, River Cane Rendezvous, and we all met up in the in this woods by a river, and we were sitting by the fire, and it was basically basically 
basic primitive skills and relearning these skills. And I sat by this fire with this guy and we were sort of, we couldn't quite see his face because it was kind of dark, but just like in the light of the fire. And we got into this conversation. He said he used to be a trucker and he would drive all across America. But he was kind of on this journey, almost like the alchemist, you know, the book Alchemist. And he eventually realised after going on this journey, like in search of this place, of this connection, this place of home, and realised it was actually just the place where he was born. And it, and it was this idea that um, no matter where we are, the place that we're born, that we're, we're always spiritually connected to. Now, I was born in the south coast of England, but I was also born in a place that was near the sea, the sound of seagulls. Mm -hmm. It's almost just in my memory because it's every day that there was always north, east, west, and then this ocean of south. Every direction I looked, or every place I was in, whoever I was talking to at school, we always knew where the ocean was. And that was a constant reminder when you have most of your childhood, this, the reminder of the sea air and the seagulls going across. You become intrinsically sort of connected, intuitively connected to the ocean and that place so close to the sea. So, but I was also born in that place where I was also a visible minority. And that was also in part of, but it's part of my story too. The fact that my parents arrived in that town, but weren't from that town. Mm -hmm. It was a place that I was born, but it's a place that my parents arrived. And so it, was a, it seemed like the right starting point to begin this story. But it's also something that relates so much to the idea, because really I was talking about the idea of home. Mm -hmm. And home has become, it was my thesis topic. But why was it my thesis topic? It's because most of my life I've always been grappling with that idea and thinking about it. And it's also something that I've done voluntary work in. And when I, when I worked voluntary in, in homeless soup kitchens in Glasgow, in Scotland, or when I moved from place to place, or the idea that when my parents came to Britain as refugees, that they literally could not carry any of their possessions or their belongings. So what do they carry with them? They carry their stories. And that's the thing that you pass on to the next generation or the people and you help to make sense of who you are. It's what you help to weave with the communities around you, the place around you, and it's what you help you, you create. So you, it's such an important part for our, especially in our world today, because all of us are kind of continually on the move. And we all come from somewhere. We all come from a place. And it's like this idea that when we're working on projects to support refugees, for example, or diaspora populations, or exploring, exploring sort of, you know, even the story of this land from 1619 and the beginning of chattel slavery in this, in this, in this country, it's, it's, the, it's the story of how did we get to this place and how did, it, and how did everybody else get to this place too? You know, and it's, we all come from a place. We've all constantly been, kind of been on a move and we've all passed, you know, had traditions and stories and ideas passed down through the generations to get to that. Um, so yeah, and so it's a good place to start, to start talking about that subject of home, which is, goes beyond physical place to ideas of much more the intangible. Yeah. But they're also connected to that physical space too. Yeah. And it can be, and it's also our memories and our, um, the things that we, we bring with us from our past to our present and the things that we think about the future as well. It's a nice sort of connector, think about home. Yeah. I I recently 
had an insight about, you know, that I, I believe relates to immigrants, although I am not an immigrant. I was born in this country. And so I've never had to move to a vastly different place. I've moved around the New York metro area, but nothing like speaking a different language and, and moving to a different country. And um, I had this epiphany um, entering the gate to Burning Man. Oh, yeah? Uh, <laughs> so because the landscape is so vastly different from anything I, I had ever seen, it's, it's dry you don't really see birds flying overhead. Nothing lives there. And they have these dust storms. Hmm. And at the time that I was entering, there was wind and I was looking at this dust swirling around and it reminded me of a blizzard, but it was something I had never experienced before. And I felt a moment of sheer terror. What am I getting myself into here? (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I had my water, you know, in the in the boot, in the trunk. So I, I felt somewhat prepared, but it occurred to me at that moment that this is maybe a fraction, tiny fraction of what it feels to be an immigrant. Yeah, well, you're moving location. So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, my immigrant story is different. I would say somewhat different because I also come to this country with an accent, a British accent. Mm-hmm. And it might be the, one of the only accents to be upfront. It's like there's kind of like so much of the sort of the dominant culture within this country, sort of as um, kind of respect or look up to or relate to, because it's 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 almost um, so many Americans grow up with British TV, or they sort of they still love they love the Queen more than we do, and so it's a kind of an interesting interesting thing being in this country as an immigrant person of colour but with a British accent and when I wear my kilt that kind of totally blows people like sometimes it's like they can't get quite understand it sometimes how I seek with a British accent who's brown <laughs> wearing a kilt whatever but the point being is like it also comes with this sort of space of I feel like responsibility too and when I first came to this country um, somebody said to me you know as and I was came here to study folklore at University of North Carolina on a, on a peace scholarship, really, and Duke as well. And um, she said to me, Elaine Lawless, she said to me, um, you know, so many of us as academics, um, folklorists, ethnographers, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, we go and study the other. We go and study the Lithuanian communities of New York City. We go and study the Haitian communities. We go to Papua New Guinea. We go to other places or the, we explore the minority. And it's usually but who studies us, who looks at us? And she goes, as a person of color with a British accent, you're gonna have doors open for you. Like so many Americans don't have those doors, can't have those doors open for them. And that was right, she was true. You can help help this country study America. So usually folklorists will study a, a group, a particular group in a particular place. But she kind of gave me the opportunity to study us, America, and go, mm go to tailgates, go to football games, go to crop mobbing, go to farming communities, go and explore, and help this country speak to this, what it needs to speak about. And I, it's kind of sort of, she kind of, I think she was basically trying to instill a sort of sense of responsibility of what you can do as an academic in this space, in this country, living here. And um, the doors that are kind of open for me in that place, 
for example, I'm a spoken word artist as well. So I get invited to places like Busboy and Poets in DC, which is, you know, very much an African-American space full of poetry and spoken word and ideas. But at the same time, I'll go to a country club in South Carolina when it's mainly white males and Republican or whatever, um, and you've got a Robert Lee portrait on there, you know, as you walk into the lobby. And they're very different spaces, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been invited to places like Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been invited to conversations to talk about what the Confederate flag mean to different types of communities. And I've also... So in a way, it's... Um, I'm realising this responsibility that comes with that and also the opportunities. It's like, here I am in this place, in this country. It's an incredible country to be in for its, whatever the potential that it has to be an incredible peace player in the world. But I think it's going through these sort of growing pains. And I think the country's in a bit of an identity crisis. And I think it's something which Bernice King, Dr. Bernice King said when she came a few years ago, when she said something that Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter have in common, both phenomena have kind of woken this country up to the great disparities that already exist. And I think that's true. And I think people were seeing it. There's disconnections, the disparities that we perhaps um, haven't fully accepted the full breadth of all the stories that have make up the United States of America. Because we can't be fit, we can't fit into a single story or a single narrative. Not everybody came through or Ellis Island. You know, we've come here in different ways, but the opportunities for the idea of when we're not just a multicultural nation and we're a very diverse nation, which could be seen as our strength, could be our strength, but we're also a story of diverse stories and traditions that come from different places that have travelled in diasporas, groups in multiple different ways and have been preserved in this country in different spaces and places. And when we kind of really embrace that and celebrate that, we find our uniqueness as a nation. We're still a story in progress. And we see our uniqueness as a nation and what we have to offer the world and for ourselves. And I think that's, um, I think that's part of one of the reasons I decide to stay here as an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Because of... And I am an American, but I'm also like an American as well. I'm not a US uh, citizen, I'm a green card holder. I came here to influence American foreign policy eight years ago. And that's why I was like, why I came here. I decided to come here, not Australia, another country, because I thought America, I wanted to influence its foreign policy. But then I got a job in East Tennessee and I went to the mountains. I joked to my ex-girlfriend at the time, she goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to North Carolina. Because where is that? I said, I don't know, let's look at the map. And I had a map. I'm not being able to kind of be like, you know, I just didn't know where North Carolina was. And then, because I was kind of near the Appalachian Mountains. Maybe I'll end up, I joke, maybe I'll end up in the mountains and wearing dungarees and playing the banjo, sitting on my front porch. And because that's what I knew from, you know, movies and stuff. And it's not that far away from that. I, I live in the mountains. I have a front porch. I don't play the banjo, but I'm working a tradition that's being kept alive so richly and preserved in the mountains, so um, I'm in that place. So be careful what you wish for, I guess, or, or what you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I here, eight years later, I'm no longer here just to influence American foreign policy. I'm influencing, I'm part of this country. This is my home now. Um, it's one of the homes, but it's a home right now. And it's a place that I've, you know, 
I love being in and I love connecting still and I'm still exploring it, still understanding more about this nation, continually understanding and but there's a there's a such a beauty in this country that I've seen not so much I've seen other places but there's some this beauty of when Americans come up to me and they say, What does the world think about us? And it's really interesting because no one else in any place I've ever visited ever says that. And I visited, you know, India, I travelled in East Africa and you across Europe and and no one says that. And it suggests to me that there's this kind of level of insecurity or perhaps or no, not that insecurity is the right word, but a level of kind of like we're still learning to be and understand who we are and we want to learn and we do care about what the world thinks about us and that's there's beauty in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this humility and it's this and I think uh, in that, with what the cultural assets of this country has to offer and the opportunities of what we're going through right now, and if we come through this in the right way, then it will be, we'll have an incredible, not, and it won't be the economic power that we offer the world, it'll be this cultural power that we have to offer the world. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's why I see this country's potential. Do you know what I mean? It's this cultural power. Tell me what you mean about identity crisis. Okay, identity crisis. What is our identity crisis? I think, I, I think, I mean, we all, and I know it's kind of a quite a, quite a statement to kind of throw out there. I don't think it's unique to this country. It happens, in, it's happening in Europe with Brexit, in my own country with Brexit in the United Kingdom. It's, it's happening in India with President Modi and his, the sort. Of demonizing of seven seven million fellow Indians in Kashmir. It's happened in Brazil with their president. Um, I think it's I think it's um, I think it's the this disconnect that's coming to the surface that's being realized and the disparities of kind of we're still struggling with the legacies of slavery and the civil war. And when I am in the, the north I find myself like New York City, DC I actually find myself sometimes, sometimes defending the South. And here I am, this brown guy from Scotland, defending the South, the place I live. And I see this sort of, and I think it happens in many different ways, there's this idea of what the South is meant to be and what it stands for and what an outsider sees it as. And the vice versa, there's an idea of what the North still stands for, what it is and who it is. And I think there's this conversation that still needs to happen on a national level. There are people that are very important in this country that are provoking that conversation, people like Brian Stevenson, you know, from the Equal Justice Initiative. And I think there are things that need to still, we need still need to talk about as a nation and address, because it's almost like, just in the same way that, you know, uh, 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 early years experiences are becoming much more recognised now in relation to how we can be healthy human beings when we, when we can address the trauma that we've experienced in our early childhood. They, they're not things that ever go away, they're things that we carry with us into our adulthood. And when you understand and unpack and spend time experiencing that, going into that memory of trauma and actually maybe processing it and coming to terms with it and helping to address it, not kind of uh, covering it up or 
fueling with alcohol, so you cannot deal with you're dealing with those emotions, then you become better for human beings because we can and healthier is part of our healing. And I think the same with the United States as a country is that there are moments of trauma that this country is exploring and unpacking and the wounds have kind of been revealed. And when we do that and we can do that in a kind of a in a, in a conversational way, in a safe way, and create those spaces for safe conversations to happen, then it will take time, but there's healing that can that we can grow together. And I think this identity crisis is part of that. I think it's you know Charlottesville. It's it's the it's the issues around Confederate statues. It's um, it's the the silos of politics and the, the shouting as opposed to the listening. It's the, it's the result of 2016 elections. It's many, it's many, many of these things that I think that are um, being revealed. And it's, it's almost like some people are sort of giving up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, or moving abroad, I don't want to move abroad, I want to stay. But I think, it's, I think it's also an opportunity. I really do think it's an opportunity. And I, I was, you know, on Saturday I gave a talk, as I mentioned, at the, the launch of this peace building project. And I said, in, in a way, it's young people that, are, that understand this the most. When you think about young people such as Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old Swedish activist that is, you know, refuses to let the story of climate change go untold. Or you've got, you know, Malala Yousafzai, who, you know, uh, persisted mm-hmm. and for to tell her story in a way under extreme sort of duress. I don't know quite like, like what the word is to use. And you got like Emma Gonzalez and um, the students from Parkland that continue to tell the story of their classmates so they wouldn't go fade into memory. And they're doing so with great extreme pressure around them. And but it, they still do it. Mm-hmm. And I think they understand the storytelling movement and the potential for the storytelling movement to build this better place, this better society, a better country. We can be better. And they're telling things that are not necessarily nice to listen to, but they're important to listen to. And I, I, uh, so when that, when I see that happening, then it's, I feel, you know, so much of our role in this crisis as is knowing where you are, what your responsibility, what your leadership opportunities can be and how you can help to make those conversations happen and also sort of knowing when to step back and who, whose story hasn't been told. So therefore, is it, is it you to tell that story or do you step back and provide space for others so their stories can be amplified and heard? You know, I think we all have to kind of ask those questions to ourselves as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think I share your hope that storytelling is a significant answer Mm -hmm. to our identity crisis. You're familiar with the concept of logos, pathos, and ethos. Somewhat. Yeah. So, logos is you know making an argument. Oh. Uh, Ethos is making an argument based on what is the right thing to do. And pathos is making an argument based on emotion. And I feel like storytelling gets to that really powerful mm. emotional connection to, uh, to an argument, to a movement. Yeah, you know, and it taps into things that 
I'm 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 of this place where a lot of it's like a lot of people come to me and say, how can I tell? How can I use storytelling to get this, get this? And I said, you know, can we maybe slow down a bit, slow down a bit, and you know, there's more to storytelling than getting what you want. It's about listening and listening in new ways. Remember, there's no such thing as a fictive story or fictive narrative when it holds truth for the teller. Our job is to listen and find out what that truth is. And in a sense, when it's when it's a personal, when it comes from a human, then it's if it holds meaning to that person, then there's truth in it. We just have to figure out that that truth is not necessarily the way that we wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that truth is like some of the really difficult things. And that could be like the Confederate flag. The flag is just a piece of cloth. Or any of the US flag or the Confederate flag or whatever flag it is. But it holds meaning and multiple meanings. And then that multiple meanings is part of someone's identity or how it might seem as someone's identity or the connection. And there's a story behind it. The opportunity we have is when we use that flag and that emblem of that symbols and these symbols in our society that's so important to us. But we create spaces where people can talk about it in a safe way and actually listen. Mm-hmm. We don't have to agree, but we can listen and find, and in that listening, we build connection. In the connection, we build understanding. In the understanding, we build peace. It's so simple, kind of simple as that. And the other component of that is um, a few weeks ago, there was a national vigil called Lights for Liberty, and it happened in cities and towns across America. And it was all potentially in protest, but also to raise awareness of what's happening on the US and Mexico border with the detention of um, migrants uh, coming across the border from Mexico and the children being detained in these detention camps. Now, I was asked if I would be a speaker at a local vigil. Now remember where I live, it's very conservative. It's predominantly conservative. I'm a leader in the community as well. I'm also an immigrant. I can, I'm visible minority. After 9-11, a friend of mine who's Lebanese Christian, she had a fiery cross put on her front lawn just in the same city I live in. So, you know, I'm aware, we're aware of this and that there is the rise of the far right where we live and in Appalachia and different parts of this country. I'm aware of that. But I also kind of thought about it. When I was asked, an email came to me, would I be a speaker at this local event in Founders Park, Johnson City, Tennessee, um, and speak out against that? And I said, you know, I can play it safe, and I think there are certain things we have to be very cautious of, and have, but there's some issues It's like, I can't. I have to um, participate in, I can't. You know, if this was Nazi Germany and we just played it safe, then we we're on the wrong side of history. I mean, and you have to remember you know, what side of history you want to be on. But I also wanted to do it in a way, it wasn't just going there and telling a story that was about shock effect. It wasn't the time for that. It was a helping people to find their connections and their opportunities and maybe as their outsider to help a country realise its potential as an immigrant and as an outsider. So I told a story about first coming to this country in 1988, age 12 years old, on a family trip. And we did all the things that families might do when we go to America, we go to Statue of Liberty, we go to Orlando to see Baby Shamu, we go to Los Angeles and we go to Disneyland. But it was in New York City that we took the ferry over to um, um, 
the Statue of Liberty and we climbed it, the inside. And it was me and my dad that went right to the top and my mother and my brother stayed at the halfway point. And we got to the top and you're on this sort of internal stairwell and you're climbing and you know, you're in a line. And we got to the top and we were like, oh, we want to take a picture of me and my dad looking out the crown, the little windows in the crown to America and we forgot our camera, right? Down at the bottom. But this man, and he was a Chinese American, he uh, said, I'll take a picture and I'll send it to you. And he did. We took, took his, our address and then some weeks later when we came back to Britain, a letter came in the mail. And I always remember that because it was this act of kindness. And an act of kindness, coupled with some other stories I told about acts of kindness, when I was a young kid and five years old and I got attacked in my hometown when I grew up by a neo-Nazi and I had stitches put on my face, my mother was always quick to tell me that it was an older white woman that saw what happened and picked me up and carried me home. She knew where I lived. And I said, and I kind of ended that with this personal story, not telling people how or what they should do, but I didn't aim that story to the people that were in that vigil. I was aiming it to the, the news channels and the press people and the reporters that would pick up the story, maybe video it and put it on the TV channels so that people that might be still on the fence about to remind them that this country's greatest superpower is kindness and to remember that. That is our potential, that's who we are, it's what we're about. Now make your decision. Do you know what I mean? What do you want to do, do? So I didn't, and at any, at any point, sort of really, I was telling my just my personal story, that's all I did. I pulled them together, my personal stories, so I can build a connection, I threaded them together in a way to connect that with my experiences as a child growing up, to the acts of kindness that helped me, to the idea of people I've met in, in East Tennessee that had been part of my story before I was even born. When I met a man when I first came there and he said that he was a cargo plane pilot helping refugees in 1972 across the Uganda border. He was helping my people. And he was from a, he's from a conservative background. <laughs> and here he was, and I got to shake the hand of a man that helped my people even before I was born. He was already linked to my story, yeah. being part of it. And that's the potential we have in the world going forward, is that our acts today are connected to others and children, our children, years and generations in the future will know these stories and they can build those connections. We're building something for the future in our daily activities, in the stories that we tell, the stories that we create. They create a ripple effect and they have the power to shift the narrative, narrative of peace that can eventually override the narrative of war. That's, that's the hope, that's the, you know, the vision, really. Yeah, and what extraordinary insight your mother had to think to remind you of the aspect of the story that you might not have been focusing on at that moment. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, my mother, I mean, my mother was, my mother was someone that was very, um, um, she really believed in education. She was what I recorded in Sikhism, which means no fear, no hate. You have no fear, you have no hate. And she was like a lion, incredibly proud and strong and fearless, but incredibly kind and powerfully, powerfully loving. You know, my dad cut the trees in the front lawn, but she didn't talk to my dad for a week. <laughs> but I came home from school one day and she didn't, I knew she was at jury service. 
come home and the whole jury service in our living room drinking tea because she built community no matter what she was like this so she had this incredible force of power and when I was about eight years old we went to the Sikh temple and she she um she said I want you to clean every shoes all the shoes and there's hundreds of shoes and I thought I was being punished and usually at a Sikh temple you take your shoes off and you go up to the highest floor of the of the temple and you bow your head to the Holy Scripture, the Guru Granth Sahib, which we consider as like a, a living guru. And you do that before you see and say hello to everybody. But she was like reversing what I'm supposed to be doing. Can I count on what I'm supposed to be doing? I said, clean everybody's shoes. And then when she came back, she goes, I'm teaching you Seva, the highest form of prayer in Sikhism. Be willing to get on your knees and clean the shoes of your fellow humans and be in service. And when you're in service, you're in prayer. And don't ever feel you are big. You get so big that you you're not willing to kind of get on the, your knees and actually clean the shoes of your neighbours, people of different religions, the poor you serve, and that's the highest form of prayer in, in Sikhism, which has become my kind of action and my duty and my vision, my passion for everything I do and what I bring to the International Storytelling Centre, that we're in service to help build a better world, mm-hmm. and you'll continue it in service. And for me, this is prayer. Mm-hmm. Do you continue to practice? Sikhism? Yeah. Every day, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, every day, Sikhism sort of is uh, a philosophy. I mean, I don't wear a turban. I don't an outwardly appearing Sikh. In that sense, I'd be a bad Sikh. Uh, when the kids say, that's sick, I go, that ain't sick, I'm sick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but... But in a sense that Sikhism for me is like, like this, there's a philosophy we have that you go out into the world and you adopt five religions or five ways of life or five cultural backgrounds that are not your own. And you go out into the world with this sort of state of mind that you go and serve, you go and be part of that community, you go and learn from that community, you learn their stories, you learn their poetry, you learn their food, and you really embrace those traditions as your own. And only at the end of the journey of five will you understand what it means to be a Sikh. You're part of the human family. So your job, your, your, your job as a Sikh is to go and learn. A Sikh basically just means disciple, to be a learner of life. Go and learn and be with your human family. And in this, in this uh, uh, task, in this kind of quest, whatever, you are learning about humanity. And in a sense, it's comparative religion or it's comparative cultural understanding. You're going to, to learn about the human family. Mm-hmm. And in that journey, so I can go to a church, a mosque, a synagogue, which I do. I can go and actually practice a lot of Buddhist teachings. Or I can sit under a tree, or I can go into a forest. And in every place, I'm in a Sikh temple. Because the world is like that, is where, wherever there's people. I mean, I don't have to go to one specific place, but it's a kind of a guideline that was sort of taught to me by my mother. But it's something I take with me wherever I go. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's fascinating that such a beautiful religion, if you will, that anybody can have a problem with it. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, even in New York City here, after 9-11, I remember seeing pictures when I was in Scotland at the time, and Sikhs had been attacked because of their visible, many of the visible appearance. And we have family, actually, in Queens, and, and Sikhs were attacked. They were attacked not just in this country, they were attacked, and this is sort of mis- understand they don't understand that the turban is such a important part and the idea of the turban is so you can be you can stand out in a crowd mm-hmm. but so that you can someone can come to you for help 
and a lot of the, that mentality was that since then Sikhs have not said no we're not we're being acute they've been assumed Muslim mm-hmm. they say they don't say no we're not it's like oh it's okay let's absorb it and that willingness to be on the front line it's like the willingness to absorb any hatred or pain so that their brothers and sisters practice a different religion don't have to and that's the willingness of Sikhs my grandparents were freedom fighters they fought for the freedom of India they but they when they fought and when Sikhs joined the, the were part of the ally forces they said they'll only join it if they could be on the front line they would be the first to die they wanted to be on the front lines they were on the front lines in fact in, in, you know in France and with um, and they said that only bit they could be on the front line and it's this idea that you're it's kind of like no fear no hate being willing to serve and to fight for equality and freedom and take the pain of others and absorb it into your heart and then when you do it it's destroyed you know what I mean like you, you take their pain and be willing to do that be be humble and be willing to get on the knees and serve others that kind of idea I'm not the best Sikh in the world though <laughs> <laughs> so you think the just discrimination and um, oppression is based on a total a complete misunderstanding of, of, of what the Sikh religion is I, I mean I, I, I mean Sikhs in America is a different story to Sikhs in where I grew up in Britain we're like we're very visible in Britain we're one of the largest minorities and so people understand who we are like and when my father wore a turban when he first came to Britain they didn't quite know but the law of race relations acts of 1976 um, changed a lot of that Sikhs can wear the turban in the British army in the police force in uniform services but in this country it's taken a bit of time because we're a much large we're a much smaller minority mm-hmm. and so we're not but that's a lot of that's changing now you know after um, you know the uh, the massacre at the Sea Temple in um Wisconsin, I think it was Milwaukee, um, in 2012. You know, again, that brought that back into the national attention. Um, we, the Sikhs are very reluctant to take a victim mentality to anything. We don't want to do that. Most Sikhs do not want to do that. So we just, the idea you continue to rise above that and you, you look to serve. Mm-hmm. So we don't, it's very you very rarely sort of find Sikhs sort of talking about like talk taking us telling a story that's about being the downtrodden mm-hmm. or being the victim. It's kind of it's there's a strong sense of that no fear, no hate in us all that, you know, we like when I was growing up as a kid, I said that, you know, I was this first visible first person of colour born in my hometown. And I got these names. We had these very racist politicians in the United Kingdom, Enoch Powell, for example, that basically gave permission to these neo-Nazis to come and beat us up. And that was totally fine. It was fashionable to do. Go beat up brown people. It was called Packy Bashing at the time. And, but when it kind of played out in the playground, obviously these kids are hearing things that their parents are hearing, that they're hearing on the news, and they would call us names or you're never quite fully welcome or call you curry boy or whatever it was. Then when I would go home to my mother and tell her about what's going on and she would remind me of where we came from. She would tell us these, I mean, she told me these stories of our grandfather building a well for people 
in East Africa that would walk past the house in the scorching sun so they could drink fresh clean water. She would tell us these stories of where we came from back in northern India and how our family sort of worked to fight oppression, but not ours, but those within the caste system, within the, the Indian tradition, the, the, the Hindu tradition to the caste system, which we're, you know, against. We don't believe in that caste. So how we would work to unravel sort of historic oppression and cultural oppression. And so, in a, in a, in a sense, so she, she would tell me how my people, simple rural people, farmers, engineers, carpenters, they came from a help to defeat the world's largest empire and won. Go back into the playground, tell them who you are. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Be proud of who you are, be proud of where you come from, understand that you are part of something. Here, is this you are made up of this. You're made up of this freedom heritage. Go and stand up for yourself. You know, and that idea of going into the world in that way wasn't just the playground, it was the world after that. When I was nine years old, I tried to organise a mass protest because I refused to learn about British colonialism in, the high, in, a, in, a, in my elementary school. When I, was, when I was 12, I tried to organise a cultural repatriation for the coin or diamond from the Queen. And then when I eventually got to be an adult, I was a school teacher and then I worked in museums. I worked on cultural repatriation projects for objects stolen by the British Empire to return them to the Māori traditions, Aboriginal traditions of Australia, to objects stolen and looted by the, in the name of the British Empire. And I worked as a kind of this fawn within the British system, the institution, and that was my work. I became a social justice curator within British museums, organising projects and programmes and public, public events and exhibits that would provoke conversations. And, and that's kind of what led me to the storytelling world. Mm-hmm. You know, and see the power of it. In in what ways does the storytelling center help people develop their stories? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's it's been a very organic process because you remember, like the festival is our biggest flagship event. That's the National Storytelling Festival, and that began in nineteen seventy three by my predecessor. There's only been two directors, him and me. He founded it. He's a, he was a school teacher. Came up with this idea to uh, um, it, actually was listening to Jerry Clower on the radio while they were in a car with his students going to the printing press to go and print the school newspaper and they were listening to Jerry Clower telling these kind of raccoon stories on the radio and they were laughing and joking and said wouldn't it be cool to bring Jerry Clower here and create a storytelling festival so they did but the festival didn't it happened on Saturday night but the festival really began on the Sunday, and that was a very... Because of what they did, they invited a mountain man storyteller called Ray Hicks from Beach Mountain, North Carolina, that told Jack Tales. And it was from a flatbed wagon, flatbed, and there were hay bales. There was 60 to 80 people that turned up. And, but they boldly called that the National Storytelling Festival in a small town in the Appalachian Mountains. Not New York, not DC, not San Francisco, in the Appalachian Mountains. And that event turned into the world's largest storytelling festival. Now, 10,500, 11,000 people come. But they come also, and this is the thing, it's like, when people come, what they did, they took parts of that idea and they've inspired by those stories and they created other storytelling events across it. Now in this country, every, 
Every state has a guild, storytelling guild. Every state has a festival of some kind. There's an idea of the professional storyteller. It came from 1973, Miss Connie Reagan Blake, first person to submit her taxes for the art from her collection at the Library of Congress. We've recorded every story from 1973, that first story from Ray Hicks up until present day. And it's the largest single collection of the storytelling movement held at the American Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. Um, and what happens now is that over those 47, almost 50 years, half a decade, half a century of this movement, everyone from Vice President Al Gore to NASA JPL to cultural diplomats sent by the State Department to people, delegations from South Africa, China, Department of Defense, to Alex Haley, Pete Seeger, Gamble Rogers, Doc McConnell, they've all come to Jonesboro, Tennessee, small town of 5,000 people, because it turns into this global village. What they take with them has been very different for different people. They've taken the stories and they've applied it into business. They've, I've spoken to business people that have sort of talked about how the story made them really feel as how they could, you know, um, advance their work as a CEO. With, done that with United Way, with Rotary International. When NASA scientists come and they, they learn how to take complex ideas and use storytelling to communicate those complex ideas to teachers and students. Because really it's about curiosity and the imagination. This is kind of starting place for storytelling. Um, so yes, but we don't always do it in this very formal way. It's a very experiential. Come and hear uh, people that have been crafting this art form for their entire lives and considered some of the best storytellers. I'd say best performance-based storytellers in the world. And so when they do that, you can listen to a folk tale or you can listen to a traditional story that might go back 40,000 years. And then you can hear a personal narrative about 9-11 or or LGBTQ stories, or stories about Holocaust survivors, or you and you hear there's all these stories alongside one another, but they're all stories that connect us and help us understand one another. It goes beyond entertainment because you know we as humans are curious beings. After what's the most popular museum in this country? It's the Holocaust Museum. You don't go there, it's not Disneyland. You go, don't, you go there because you're understanding how we can be so destructive. We're curious about the story of us as humans. We want to learn. You know, after 9-11, the visit attractions to New York declined. Visits to visit attractions. But people went to the Islamic galleries of the Metropolitan Museum because they, were, they wanted to find out the truth for themselves not just what they hear on the news. And that's what the Storytelling Festival helps. It's like, it unpacks, it's like a doorway to hearing a story from the past to a present to an experience. And it's a doorway to the world. It's a doorway to across time. And that, in that sense, a story has the power to hold time and stop it too. And it's the most rawest way in which we can connect with one another. We do it on our front porches. We go home for Thanksgiving, we don't talk in facts, we tell stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? We listen yeah. to our grandmother. It happens on a very intimate, lying in bed with your lover. What are you doing? You're telling each other stories, confessions, ideas, dreams, mm-hmm. moments, the nuances of our everyday life, the train ride home. Right? Who do we meet? The, 
And these things are so important. They connect us. Mm-hmm. And that connection leads to kind of greater understanding, and understanding leads to peace. And that's what happens in Jonesboro, but it's what happens in storytelling moments all across this country and the world. And if we create those safer spaces for that to happen in a storytelling space, arts places, cultural spaces, town squares, churches, mosques, if we can create those places as more and more and use these spaces of culture to bring people together, to do it in our food ways, in our traditions, in our multiple ways in which we can express the identities of who we are, the story of who we are, that we get this understanding of each, each other, but also in that space, get to, get to learn how we can create stories together going forward. Stories never static, like our identities are never static. It's flexible mm-hmm. and it changes. Identity is flexible and so can a story too. And in a crisis that we talked about, and it's, it's like, it could be crisis or it could be just identities kind of flexing. <laughs> So we've got that chance to kind of really create stories together too. Mm-hmm. How do you create a safe space? Mm. Do you have any hacks that you can share, little tips and suggestions? How do you create a safe space? You know, I think it's really different wherever you are because the context is going to be different. I think you you go with the intention, I want to create a safe space. I want to create a space where it's inclusive you remind people in these spaces that, you know, we're going to listen to each other or you create these kind of guiding tools of like, it's important to listen as as much as it is to tell. Make time to listen. Turn off your phones. Come without judgment. Um, Create spaces that might also be more familiar to the attendees. It may not be in a cultural space. It may not be in an art centre because that can be off-putting. It may not be in a museum but it may be in a hospital, it may be on a front porch, it may be in a shared civic space, it may be on a front lawn, it may be in these other spaces that that we can kind of enter that is more familiar to people that live in that area. And I think it takes, again, it's kind of like taking time and it takes progress and it takes uh, support from others. And you have kind of, so I, I think though, though that's important. It's first time I brought in uh, two rival gangs in the city of Glasgow for a, com- a conversation to, on around this back in look, quite a while back they broke out into a fight in a museum space but the thing is I had political support from the city authority saying do it again this is important they understood the value of culture they understood why it was important for kids to get access to culture and museums and things that belong to them they said, do it again, here's more money. And what they did is gave me more money, I implored most, I had more social workers, I limited the amount of people participating, I trained the front of house staff, if this happens again, remember these are young kids, they're at risk, they've got, they live a life of, it's difficult, just the fact that they're here is something that we should really applaud them for, give them positive praise. We did it again and it worked. And that program became a, um, became part of the gang reconciliation programs for the city of Glasgow, using cultural spaces like museums um, to bring groups that live side by side on different neighborhoods, but have this idea about the other. Some are Protestant gangs, some are Catholic gangs, 
and I don't like the word gang, but these are groups that have this sense of pride for their community in their place. And what the, the idea was to not look at it to defend this space, but look at what we're proud about our spaces and share it with the others. Right? And that was what we end up doing. So it takes commitment, it takes time, sometimes it takes polit political support, sometimes it takes funding. It requires training, it can't be done in isolation, it requires cooperation with interdisciplinary partners, multi-partners, different sectors, work with specialists. You know, I come from a cultural background, I'm not a health specialist, and I mean, I'm not a community development specialist, but I work with community development specialists and health specialists. Right now we're building a space inside a hospital, a rural hospital in Tennessee, so it becomes the nation's first storytelling hospital. And it's a state-of-the-art space, but it's in a place with great health disparities. We take their leadership when it comes to the public health, the, the space itself, but we bring the expertise of storytelling. We combine our work, we commit to our partnership, and we commit to the idea that we may get things, some things wrong. But we keep working on it. And we're creating that space and it's working. You know? And now other places are wanting that too. So I think it's just about reminding people that and sending that message out multiple ways that all stories matter. They're all valid. We come to listen to. And the art of storytelling really is a tool if I could change the name, I won't, but if I change the name, the International Listening Center, I might, because that's really what storytelling does. It helps us, it teaches us to listen. Catherine Tucker Windham from Selma, Alabama, who was a, considered a matriarch for storytelling, talked about that in her last performance in 2010, was storytelling teaches us to listen, we need to listen. Well, we're, we're so lucky, you know, at the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking that you've been part of at least two summits, right? I saw pictures yes, of you. I did it too. I performed <laughs> at, at the, both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Presented at both. The first time was uh, Chattanooga, mm -hmm. and that was with Jamie Bennett. Mm -hmm. And uh, he invited if I would come and do a sort of co thing with him. And I took his lead, but he just knows what he's doing. It makes you feel very comfortable on the stage. So I just basically did a kind of a performative piece. He goes, yeah, yeah, just do it. Yeah, no, no problem. And then he facilitated the Q&A, and it was totally under his leadership. And he's been a kind of an incredible pioneer and supporter and advocate for just bringing new voices to the spaces, these places. He created a safe space for me. Yeah. Um, and then obviously uh, down in Columbia, uh, South Carolina, which was when you all kind of invited me to be the like, plenary. Mm -hmm. And that was such a great opportunity. And, and something that happened, I don't know if you know, but I always love to give this talk. But again, I said the, the, the art part of it comes when you're kind of like crafting these ideas and stories, creating these vignettes, and you're helping people to see, realize theirs. And I do this memory exercise where I help people go back into their spaces and their memories and their childhoods. Yes. And afterwards, I find that people don't come up to you straight away, like other talks, I'm, I know it sounds like I like, do this all the time, but they don't come up to you like, they kind of like walk away and I think, I, I thought, oh my God, that, was that really terrible? Was that crap? Like people are walking away. But they come up to you like later on in the day or the next morning and they say they've been processing it. And I had breakfast the next morning because you create that space where you can sit at the table and you can just meet whoever, which is great. And I sat next to a gentleman and he was elderly, elder, older, I should say. And he said he was a member of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. 
and he is designing a space for a museum that will go into the basement of that church. And obviously I visited that church on the outside and I know this a story, the story, a famous story about how it was uh, bombed and young the young girls that were killed in that bombing and I've been to that space and and so I asked and he showed me the pictures of the design and I kind of in that simple connection I told him about this idea what we do at the National Storytelling Festival is we create these little tiny story spot stages and the whole idea is when you listen to people come families come together and listen to stories on the stage it's also important for a grandmother or a great-grandmother to be able to sort of step up onto a little spot story spot stage and the audience might be their great-grandchild or vice versa the great-grandchild could step up and they're given a little bit of a platform so wouldn't it be good if you could take that idea because i'm going to take that idea and bring it into this museum space. So the idea of that story, it's not static, because we want people to come into that space and be inclusive, he said, you know, make it a place where people can feel welcome and listen to each other's stories too, in response to what they're seeing on the exhibits. So that was just a, I don't know if that's going forward or that idea, but that conversation was my kind of highlight of the whole gathering, convening, because it sparked an idea for that gentleman to think about the space that's so important to the story of this nation, but also us going forward into the future, the space that he's trying to create. Mm-hmm. Not just about the story of the past, it's very important, but it's also what we can learn from that so we can create the story of the future and the world that we wish to see. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I can't call to mind his name right now, but... I need to reach out to him, so I need to get his name in an email. Because so. yeah. I said I would send him some more info, but I just lost his card. And, uh, I might be able to help okay, you with that, okay. yeah. <laughs> and I would like to go back, go and visit him, actually. Well, this has been such a privilege and a delight to be able to meet, meet you here in New York City. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, and we got coffee, too, which is great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it's fuel. <laughs> so... <laughs> No, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. And I love the, all the work that you guys are doing, NCCP, and all across the country. Thank you. Thanks. It's encouraging to hear that. <laughs> You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Follow us on social media and suggest our next topic. Bye for now.